AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for December 15th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Manny Ortiz. Uh, Manny, you're a, a, uh, the lead for our analysis team here. Tell us a little bit about what that entails. Um, so, what does that entail? Um, it, it entails managing a, uh, a pretty, what I would consider a pretty elite team of analysts. Um, here at AT&T, um, whose primary focus is looking at all of the uh, uh, tons of data that we uh, mm -hmm. produce from all of our different security devices across our network, mm -hmm. um, bring it back into a into a platform where uh, where these guys can basically analyze it and and then mm -hmm. obviously tell when there's uh, there's things that look suspicious, um, things that we need to look at. So um, a huge huge uh, uh, team with uh, a lot of analysis at its core. Mm -hmm. So gathering data, analyzing data, looking for suspicious activities, investigating those, and, um, and on rare occasions, remediating any issues that That's might correct. come up. That's correct. Yep. All right, yep. very the good. Full, the full spectrum. All right, welcome yep. to the program today. Thanks. And uh, Jim Clausing, you're a member of that team, an important part of it, doing security forensics predominantly. But uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to lately. Yeah, well, I. I spend a lot of time working on developing uh, tools for our cloud forensics presence mm -hmm. and for you know that's the big thing that has us you know hopping these days is you know what do you do when vms in the cloud get compromised or or when the hypervisors get compromised mm -hmm. and how do we investigate those situations. So mm -hmm. I've been spending a lot of time working on tools to allow us to do that. All right. Yeah, very good. And better to be uh, prepared than having to react to a situation you're not prepared for. So appreciate the work you do there and welcome to the program. And uh, I'm, I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll uh, jump right into it here. And uh, Manny, you get it first here. And I guess, you know, uh, we've been using credit cards in basically the current state for a while. There's a lot of work to try to get to chips. Uh, yep. But, you know, when you're working in e-commerce sites, I'm not sure that there's really been any, uh, any significant advancements there. But uh, tell right. us what that leads to. Yeah, so, so the story that, uh, that I'm going to talk about today, um, you know, is, is, is talking, and it's, it's kind of uh, around this time of year, you know, mm -hmm. the credit card use is... A lot of is, purchasing. Right, is <laughs> extreme at this time mm -hmm. of year, so it's probably really relevant to, to this time of year. Um, so it basically talks about a, um, some research that was published um, in the academic journal of the IEEE, the Security and Privacy, mm -hmm. um, from a team in, uh, in Newcastle University in, U in the UK. Um, and they, I don't know if they coined the term, but they're calling the, the attack the distributed guessing attack. And, and basically um, what this attack is, is, um, well actually before I get into the attack, this, if you remember, and I'm not sure whether we did a story on this, but the, the, the UK bank, the Tesco Bank, mm -hmm. they're actually 
um, looking to see whether or not there's a connection to this type of attack mm. with the with that uh, with that uh, compromise over there, where okay. I think there was about forty thousand accounts that were. Um, were, that were at least accessed, and I think 20,000 mm -hmm. of them had money um, taken out of them, and I think in total it was something like 2.5 million pounds mm. that were that was stolen, and Curious. I think they're attributing it to this particular attack. Or this type, this this type, type of, of methodology. Attack. Exactly, okay. yeah. So this particular attack, basically it, um, it sort of hones in on two different weaknesses. Um, the first weakness is, um, is basically um, the, each individual site, um, an e-commerce site, mm -hmm. um, the, the ability for you to have to sort of um, run your guesses against many, uh, many sites. So, so you've got, uh, typically you've got a single site that you're mm -hmm. gonna run your credit card uh, uh, data up against. Normal purchase transaction. You're gonna go to a single site, right. you're gonna do your transaction, you know, everything's Right, good. So, this, so what this does is it takes advantage that you've got many different e-commerce sites out there mm -hmm. and each one of them allows a certain level of guessing to happen mm -hmm. and so well i mean presumably they're typos right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. right but yeah. the abuse side of it would be that there there's an opportunity for doing guessing so they're right. going to limit it to perhaps three or five or something along exactly lines, something right? yeah something i think they were saying somewhere that it, it ranges somewhere between 10 and 20 guesses okay which to me sounds a little bit high mm -hmm. but i you know again you know they're trying the to folks curtail that are doing to it the, know best right exactly they're trying to curtail to the to the to the customer at that point, mm -hmm. realizing that people do do make mistakes, mm -hmm. they don't want to cut them off prematurely. So, um, so again, this sort of relies on that uh, ability to sort of run your you know your guesses mm -hmm. against multiple websites, e-commerce websites. Mm -hmm. And we're not um, talking about three or five. We're talking about probably three thousand. We're talking 5, about or something yeah, like right. That, right. We're talking about hundreds, mm -hmm. right? So, okay. um, and the, the the thing is, is that you. Really, when you're looking at some of the data that that is involved in in card in card data, um, you actually don't need that many for mm -hmm. things like the CVV number. So the CVV number is only a three-digit number. You need a thousand guesses. Mm -hmm. um, so a thousand guesses spread over a hundred sites, mm -hmm. kind of easy to do. You got to at least save one site to actually do your purchase on though. Correct. Oh. Right. You you save that one for the end. <laughs> Being facetious. Right. So so again so you've got um, so you've got basically the that weakness, mm -hmm. um, and then the other weakness is is that there's no standard for each e-commerce site for mm -hmm. what data they use to approve the transaction. Right. So there's differences, and so what they've done is they've created basically a script. Mm -hmm. I almost call it a bot um, that allows them to use these weaknesses together. Mm -hmm. And basically what it goes out is it, it goes out and, and guesses mm -hmm. at certain information. And when it gets certain information, it's able to basically move that information over to its next guess on another website, on an e another e-commerce website, mm -hmm. to try to guess the next piece of information that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so. With all this combined and all the intelligence behind the, the script that they've written, they've literally been able to, to crack cards, CVV numbers, mm -hmm. um, um, actual credit card numbers mm -hmm. in less than six seconds. 
Wow. Um, they actually have a video there where they show you, you know, how quickly it is able to, it, based able on to just it. knowing the last four digits of a credit card number, right. how quickly it was able to get the CVV number. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think this is a case where, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about how individuals can protect themselves. What do you think? So in, individuals obviously can protect themselves by, um, so uh, probably things that we've talked about in the past. So um, limiting the, so if you've got a card, make sure that you have a card, a credit card that's specific to online purchasing. Mm -hmm. So keep your online purchasing card separate from the cards that you have. And this isn't gonna prevent it from being used fraudulently, but it'll at least limit, it'll at least keep you from getting all your cards. Exactly, blocked, right? exactly. And they're also <laughs> saying that- The expectation is, if, if fraud is detected, they're gonna block your card, you're gonna to have to go through a process to get it replaced and things like that. You don't want all your credit Personal card cards. Personal cards, right, blocked. exactly. With all your real money right. involved in all that, in all that mess. Yeah. Um, also important to keep in mind that the, um, as long as you report the events quickly enough, you're not liable for any more exactly. than about $50, and generally speaking. If exactly, you, yeah. You know, if you've done everything right, they're not gonna hold you for the exactly. $50. Either. And they also say to obviously on those online credit cards, keep the your your limit, mm -hmm. your upper limit low. A lot of credit cards like to say, sure, here, yeah, take $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they say to yeah. keep, you know, keep that limit low so that, you know, if something does happen, there is a, you know, there is a reasonable upper limit that they can, you know, that they can purchase on right. the card. Okay, good point. If you have to use a, uh, or they're saying if you have to use a bank card um, um, to only transfer money to that bank card as you need it. So if mm -hmm. you're going to use the same card online right. and it is your actual bank card, so it's tied mm -hmm. to a checking or savings account, to only transfer money over to it as you need it, as you know you're going to make purchases. Mm -hmm. I know that it makes it a little bit of a pain mm -hmm. um, to, you know, to do it that way. But again, it does limit your your exposure. Yeah, you know, limit the exposure because that's a case where it actually is your money. On a credit card, right? It's it's effectively the bank's money until you actually pay the bill. But in the case of a uh, a bank card, it's actually going to be your money that's missing while you're working through exactly uh, getting that. Yeah, result. and that could take some time before mm -hmm. you know they sort it all out. And in the meantime, your money is sort of held ransom. Okay, so now, and I know anybody that's on the receiving end of PCI, mm -hmm. you know, payment card industry requirements, they're probably not a big fan of it because it does, you know, it, it does require additional right. work. You have to do certifications um, to, uh, to make sure that you're compliant. Right. And then if you don't, you might lose your uh, opportunity your ability, to use right. the, uh, the payment cards, which could be a big impact on the business. So. Uh, but personally, I tend to be, I think it's kind of the right model that it's an industry-driven set of standards that are, for the most part, based on real circumstances. Right. That is, it's not an academic exercise. It's a, we've seen these problems before. Yep. We need to fix these problems and make sure that it's an industry standard. So as you pointed out, uh, you suggested some of the things that are perhaps will need some improvement is... Um, you know, perhaps having some standards for how you validate whether the credit card is valid and maybe even doing it through a centralized repository. I think that oftentimes is, is the case to make sure that if there are lots of guesses being taking place 
across the board right. that it uh, perhaps locks out the account or does something you know appropriate to make sure that it doesn't turn into a big financial loss. Right. Yeah. So sta standardizing is going to be so making sure that you don't have different standards across mm -hmm. different e-commerce sites. So yeah. everyone has a standard that says you need to check these three things, mm -hmm. and everyone needs to check these exact three things. Mm -hmm. Um, and perhaps some controls around what locks them down. I think one of the things that I've run into, just my personal experience, is that I'll put in a credit card, you know, put in credit card information, and it'll say, "Well, something's wrong." Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what's wrong, right. and I'll fix the numbers, make sure that's all right, put it in, something's wrong, uh, and then you know, fix this, uh, do it again, and right. oh, something. It turns out that I missed an initial my name or something like that. Right. It wasn't right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, yep. I digress. So, so yeah, so I think that, you know, that's obviously that. And then and then obviously, like you said before, making sure that on on the other side that there's mm -hmm. good that there's good uh, checking happening. So mm -hmm. making sure that you can't actually have your card being checked across multiple e-commerce sites with it not, not being, you know, mm -hmm. being checked at some central location. A human can only make so many purchases at a particular time. Exactly. Right? So there, yeah. there may be some there exceptions to, be, to right. that. You know, when it, there was a period of time is actually uh, uh, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, they were talking about micro purchases, you know, having, that never really came to fruition, mm. but there certainly are cases where you could be purchasing things at different places at different times, you know, in an e-commerce sense. Correct. But, uh, right. There would be some based on analytical, um, you know, um, empirical analysis, you would be able to see that you know, this is normal behavior and something is different. Yeah. When something's different, you raise a flag and either put a block on or put a control in place right. to uh, make sure it doesn't turn into a problem. Yeah. So, all right, very good. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that. Now, uh, for sort of a switch of pace here, um, Jim, the, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about NTP in the context of using it in reflective denial of service attacks. There have been a number of um, uh, cases where it's been a problem, I think, with this for the most part been brought under control, but um, still we rely on NTP for other things and wouldn't want that to go away. <laughs> yeah, this one, um, I got my attention a couple of blog posts a week or two ago. The NTP project put out an update. They're the ones that provide the code that is used by, uh, you know, as the NTP daemon in most Unix and Linux distributions, and it's the code base that's used for NTP server across a lot of other devices. And, you know, for someone like me who does, you know, forensics and incident response, you know, time is really important when I'm trying to correlate, you know, logs and events across, you know, firewalls and proxies and local logs on devices so ntp is really important to mm -hmm. me and what we what they fixed here uh, was a denial of service vulnerability in the ntpd code versions 4.2 dot something and 4.3 dot something mm -hmm. up to whatever was current uh, as of the 20th of november or thereabouts uh, and what all it took was a single um, maliciously formed packet to kill the NTP daemon. Mm. Uh, it would cause a dereference of a null pointer and would crash the 
it crashed the demon. And, you know, as I said, time being important for the kind of work I do, you know, I, I need to be reasonably certain that all of the devices that are generating log data that I'm looking at are synchronized. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. losing the source of time synchronization is, uh, is something that is a concern. Of course, if somebody kills the NTP demon, then that's an NTP server that can't be used for reflective denial of service attack. But <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Fixes that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, one of one of the uh, blog posts that uh, that mentioned this was by a friend of mine uh, that um, that pointed out that one of the important things to keep in mind is how we architect our networks to try to you know protect some of the critical uh, things like NTP. For example, time is important for Kerberos, which is the underlying mechanism in Active Directory for authentication. Mm -hmm. If the clocks get out of sync, you can't log in. You can't authenticate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, you know, these kinds of things are, are important. So we need to define it, some defenses around these, you know, simple things like, as we've stated a number of times when we're talking about the denial of service, NTP, most NTP servers don't need to respond to queries from random folks on the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, if internal to an enterprise, you'll have some number of, you know, um, NTP servers that are your, your reference, your, your high stratum, if you've got your own atomic clock or GPS clock, you know, you can set up your own Stratum 1 server internally and then share that out. Um, you can uh, serve NTP up from your routers if you want to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that should be controlled as to where you get your, um, you know, your, your good time from mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and who is allowed to query you um, to get time from you. Um, you know, if, if you've got, if you need to go out to the internet to get good time, you know, stratum one time, you know, then you should at least have firewall rules or, you know, ACLs on the routers to only limit the responses back from the servers you're expecting, you know, since it's UDP, Obviously, it could be spoofed, but um, you know you, you need to put some protections around that. It, and it's it's because time is so important for, as I said, for the kinds of things I do for forensics and incident response. You know, this just got my attention mm -hmm. as something you know, that needs to be taken care of. I yeah, you know, since the NTP uh, Foundation put out their new, you know, put out their patches. Uh, around Thanksgiving, I expect to see um, updates pushed to the, all of the major Linux distributions in short order. But as I said, the, it's it's that it's the same code base that's used for in a lot of other uh, devices. So you know, 
how long is it going to take everybody else to get updated? You know, that's a question. I know Cisco put out a, a vulnerability uh, notification that they've got a whole bunch of their products that are affected, and there will be updates coming in the next uh-huh. few days and weeks to, to update them. And CERT vulnerability page lists a whole bunch of vendors, and they don't know whether they're impacted by this or not. All right. So I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to point out, uh, first of all, to your point, Jim, I think you're, you're, you're right on par that, um, as, you're, as you're actually pointing out right now, the path to getting the appliances uh, and various devices that support NTP updated is probably going to be a relatively long one. So you don't want to be necessarily dependent on fixing you know, on, on patching NTP, you want to be resilient to this type of an attack or even other ones uh, that might, you know, might pop up related to NTP. That is, and again, as you point out, it's important that you not only have time available, but you're able to trust that time. Uh, you wouldn't want somebody to be able to try to drift your clock and, that, you know, that can cause other kinds of problems, not just in the logs themselves, but some authentication systems could be fooled by uh, by having an inaccurate time in your system, so that's uh, perhaps another aspect of this to be paying attention to. So, and it's not that difficult. It just requires a little bit of thought, and as you started this discussion, some architecture around how you manage time in your enterprise environment. What is your authoritative source? How is that distributed down to uh, local uh, data centers, and making sure that they stay. Um, controlled and in sync, and rather than just, oh, there's a time server over there, let's use that one, have a little bit of structure around that. Right, and these days, you know, the the GPS clocks are cheap. You know, mm-hmm. Compared to when I started, you know, looking at these things when, you, you know, the only stratum zero sources you could get were the atomic clocks, which mm-hmm. were very expensive. You know, these days, you can get relatively cheap uh, clocks, that you can put in your data center if you can get right. a you know right. a decent antenna on the roof, mm-hmm. and so you can have one in each of your big data centers that can then feed time out to your name servers or your DHCP servers that can then feed your individual laptops and workstations and so forth. Yep. I, you know you you can't at at the lowest level. You're not going to be able to protect all of them from a malicious insider because, you know, they're, you're going to expect that each of the, the laptops and whatever are going to be querying for time. So you can't say, well, I won't accept time from this entire subnet or something. Um, you know, if, if, there, if you got a bad guy crafting these malicious packets on the inside, you know, you do have a problem, but... <laughs> You know, exactly as you were saying, you know, if you if you control your you know your good sources, your uh, ultimate trusted sources, and then feed those out and in you know, a tree kind of a thing, mm-hmm. multiple layers, but not too many layers, <laughs> or you end up with a or you end up with a drift problem there. And then I guess yeah, the other thing that I was going to uh, perhaps uh, point out is. Um, this, this issue that you'd point out with the appliances, first of all, you'd mentioned the, uh, the GPS thing. You're absolutely right. There are devices that, uh, you know, they can get GPS time, provide that as a time reference, and uh, they are able to actually keep 
relatively accurate time, even if the GPS signal is lost for a period of time. The most difficult part of that whole thing is actually putting the antenna on uh, in, in view right. of, a, of a GPS signal. But um, you know, that's, uh, yes, that's getting the antenna to some place where it gets a good clear right. view of the right. sky so it can sync with multiple satellites. Yeah, especially in a data center that has no windows. The, uh, so the next uh, aspect of this is, uh, you know, compare the appliance world where it's difficult to get patches in place and the process to patch each device is unique to that particular device to a virtualized world where, you know, you can run the, the NTP uh, server as a part of a virtualized environment and have that under a relatively structured and um, uh, standard uh, patching processes associated with your infrastructure. So this is, I think, an example where the movement to a virtualized and cloud environment, even for at least uh, in a controlled way, as we said, uh, designed way, but even for managing time would perhaps be the, uh, the right direction to be moving. So folks should be thinking about that, not just you know moving applications to a virtualized world, but the, uh, the applications that support your applications could possibly be uh, at least more secure in, a, in this virtualized environment. Yep. Yep. All right, very good, Jim. Thanks for bringing that. And um, the next thing I wanted to just share with you, and this is just a sort of relatively quick plug or a, a pointer, so to speak. You know, we had Troy Hunt on the program some time ago. He's actually in, uh, in the middle of September. He joined us and we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the data breaches and the impact of those, associated with those data breaches. Well, he put together what I think is a relatively nifty uh, business intelligence dashboard around the, uh, I think it was on the order of 1.2 or 1.4 billion breach records that had been basically collected together. And uh, so he has it categorized in terms of the type of information, that's the pie chart on the top left there, the type of information that's been, uh, that's been taken, the, um, on the right top, basically, uh, the, the breach events that had taken place or the organizations that had been uh, victimized associated with those breaches. And then across the bottom there, the uh, timelines associated with those. And it's actually a, a dynamic site. We'll probably provide the link to you. You can go to the site and you can pick out different attributes, whether you want to look at the pie chart or when you look at the uh, organization, and it will reflect those changes in the, uh, the time frame or the other the parts of the graph. So kind of nifty to play with for a few minutes and get a little better appreciation for some of the breach events that have taken place and uh, to put a little more thought into if you're, for example, if you're associated with an enterprise, making sure that that doesn't happen to your enterprise. You don't want to have a big block on, no. that, uh, on that graph on there if you can help it. So I'd like to provide an internet weather report for December 15th, 2016. And uh, this will be the last, or likely the last internet weather report for the year, so as long as we don't see anything, uh, I guess, particularly notable. But uh, taking a quick look at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, this is activity from December 12th, and we see uh, clearly that uh, around 70% of the activity is uh, from Telnet port 23 TCP, followed by port 7547 TCP. So the most notable item here, you know, we've been reporting for weeks and weeks about uh, the probing activity on port 23. I wanted to provide an update on port 7547. So we're gonna take a little closer look at that in a moment here. And then that's followed by port 22 TCP, that's SSH. That tends to be probing activity looking for uh, servers with weak passwords, followed by port 3389, that's remote desktop protocol. Again, looking for servers with weak passwords, perhaps non-existent passwords. 
followed by 1911 TCP. Now this is one that's moved up significantly since last week. It moved up 427 slots, but having investigated that a little bit further, that's uh, activity associated with a research organization. So I'll classify that as innocuous. And then followed by port 80 TCP, that's web services, followed by port 21 TCP, that's FTP. That is also research activity, jumped up a number of slots, but uh, coincides exactly with the, uh, the 1911 activity in terms of time and the sources. And then uh, followed by 443 TCP, that's uh, encrypted web activity SSL. And then 1900 UDP, we've talked about that a number of occasions where it's uh, basically probing, looking for uh, SSDP servers that would be, uh, be able to be used for reflection act attack activity. And then uh, last here is 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, actually is uh, at the top of the list. Again, port 23, about 70% of those. And then followed by a, I'll say a sizable sliver, uh, maybe roughly 20%, 15% of the activity associated port with port 7547. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out here is in previous weeks, actually two weeks ago when we uh, reported on this, uh, port 7547 actually had the first place slot and since then has been diminishing. So we're gonna take a little closer look at that. Also showing up on this graph or this pie chart or port 445 TCP, that's uh, Conficker, port 80 TCP web activity. And we have a number of ICMP ports or, or types that are showing up here. ICMP 8, which is a ping request. ICMP 11 and ICMP 3 are reflective of, um, uh, basically it can't get there from here, uh, a consequence of uh, a lot of the probing activity. And then uh, showing up in the number uh, 10 slot is uh, port 22 TCP, that's uh, SSH activity. And, and again, this is in terms of the number of sources that are doing that probing. So digging a little bit deeper into the last 30 days of activity associated with probes and sources on port 7547 TCP, you know, this is the um, CPE WAN management protocol. Well, actually what had happened is uh, there were some vulnerabilities associated with the LAN side protocol that is often um, offered on this same port. It was exposed to the internet side on some uh, a, uh, basically um, consumer service or uh, internet service residential gateways. And as a consequence, uh, those specific devices were uh, exploited, recruited into a botnet that they're now calling the Annie botnet, which is a basically a big brother of the uh, of the Mirai botnet. But nevertheless, uh, what we're seeing here is that particularly notable is in the number of sources that are doing that probing activity. We're up in the order of hundreds of thousands of devices that were participating. It's now in the order of perhaps about 20,000 devices. So it's diminished by about 90% of its original size that we had been observing from uh, this particular platform. Now it's interesting to take a look at the geographic distribution of this activity. This particular uh, chart is showing what it looked like on November 28th when this activity was relatively new. Uh, we had an order of about 140,000 sources, those unique addresses that are mapped on this map here. We saw really heavy activity in Europe, some activity in South America, Australia, uh, some relatively heavy in India, and some in, uh, it appears to be uh, uh, China there. And so you could see where the really hot spots were associated with this activity. Now, since then, uh, looking at a chart from, I think it was just December 11th, 
what we see is, uh, I guess what I'll describe is a little broader distribution. As attention has been brought to this, uh, the activity on this port, we see more researchers that are basically uh, popping up as sources of scanning activity, but probably more notable is where the hotspots have basically diminished. Uh, a lot of the uh, ISPs, and, and this is a case where ISPs have had to take action to remediate this issue, and um, a lot of ISPs have taken that action, but there are still some hot spots of that activity still taking place. So uh, it's notable to be really kind of take a, a comparison of the previous chart with the current or more recent chart to uh, show how those two compare. And uh, one thing I'll point out is that is a normalized uh, chart. That is, there are many fewer sources in this second chart uh, in comparison to the previous one. So. Um, it uh, helps to uh, kind of show the, the relative change that's taking place. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us uh, with email at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes as an audio podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And uh, Jim, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Manny, thank you for joining. Pleasure. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.